What a joy it's been to be with you this weekend for a missions conference. I, I love missions conferences because they, um, they take the focus off of me. And when I was a pastor of our church, the focus off of what was going on in my church in that little corner of the world and lifted my eyes up to the great work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in places all around the world. So it was really uh, uh, encouraging to me, especially I, I love them when I don't have to plan them, when somebody else planned them and executed them, and I just can show up and have the privilege of preaching God's Word. So tonight, um, we're going to look at Mark chapter 5, and I'm only going to read verses 18 to 20, but there is a story that precedes it, which you will hear about some in the course of our message tonight. Uh, but we're going to look at this passage where Jesus encounters a man who is demon-possessed. In fact, he's uh, possessed by a legion of demons, and he's self-destructive, and he's dangerous. He can't be controlled, and Jesus casts the demons out of him and restores him to his right mind. And then, uh, as we might naturally assume would be his desire, he wants to be with Jesus, but Jesus forbids him. So would you follow along in your copy of God's Word, Mark chapter 5, we're reading verses 18 to 20. Hear now the reading of God's holy and infallible word. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was entreating him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. And we pray now that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, that we would see his great power and his great mission, and that we would not only know of this mission, but we would embrace it and own it for ourselves personally and individually and as a body of believers. I thank you, Father, for this congregation of believers and how you're using them to further the gospel throughout the world. And pray, Father, you might grant us renewed conviction and renewed commitment to that mission. And Father, as that mission involves the proclamation of the good news of a Savior who forgives us of our sins, we pray, Father, that maybe even this night someone here under the hearing of this word or watching online would be moved to embrace Christ and find salvation in Him. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ready to stay and ready to go. Underneath the seal of the Baptist Missionary Union are these words. Ready for either. On this seal are also found some images embossed. On the one side an ox standing with a plow. And on the other side an altar waiting for someone to worship. Ready for either plow or altar ready to stay or ready to go, ready to serve here in this place or ready to serve there 
somewhere else. This is the stance of a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has often been said that the call of discipleship is the call to follow Jesus. There's even a hymn by that title, I've Decided to Follow Jesus. God called Abraham and didn't even tell him the destination, and yet Abraham followed. Jesus called Peter, he dropped his nets and began to follow after Christ. Jesus called Matthew, he left his desk for his tax collecting business and began to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is certainly at the heart of discipleship, and yet Jesus will not let this poor man just set free from horrible spiritual bondage follow him. Verse 18 states, And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was entreating him that he might accompany him. And verse 19 says, He did not let him. This statement alone makes this episode stand out as particularly noteworthy. Why? Well, first of all, because it should be your desire, your heart's desire, to follow Jesus and to be with him. Again, verse 18 states, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was entreating him that he might accompany him, and he did not let him. Like this man, it should be our desire to follow, to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. It ought to be your desire to follow Jesus, to be with Jesus. There are two reasons why you and I ought to desire to follow Jesus. Perhaps there are many more than just these two, but these two at least. First of all, because of who he is. And secondly, because of what he has done for us. When you consider, first of all, who Jesus is, the person of Christ, his character, his nature, his compassion, his wisdom, his personal magnetism, it is clearly understandable why you ought to desire to follow Jesus. Just read the Gospels. One of the things that I've come to do uh, on a regular basis now in my encounters with people is to challenge them to read the Gospels. You'll be surprised how many people have never read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not just outside the church, but in the church. And they've never had a firsthand experience of seeing the person of Christ unveiled before them in all of his glory and majesty on the pages of the Gospels. Who has such compassion as does Jesus? Who has such power as does Jesus? Who has such moral perfection as does Jesus? Why wouldn't you want to be with Jesus? As the hymn writer so aptly put it, fair are the meadows, fair are the woodlands, robed in the blooming garb of spring. Jesus is fairer. Jesus is purer who makes the woeful heart to sing. Mark says that this man was entreating Jesus to let him be with him, to accompany him. And Luke records that he was begging him. Not only is his desire understandable, understandable when you consider 
who Jesus is, but also it's understandable when you consider what Jesus had just done for this man. Remember his condition. Mark 5, 3 to 5, shows us his spiritual bondage. Verse 3 says, And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly, night and day, among the tombs and in the mountains, he was crying out and gashing himself with stones. You can hardly imagine the picture painted here in Mark's gospel. You wouldn't want to be anywhere around a man like this. A man in bondage, a man with no self-control, a man of self-destruction and dangers to everyone around him. Remember his relief. We are told Jesus had compassion on him and he was suddenly relieved of his bondage and made whole. Verse 15 says, And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. (laughs) The very man who had the legion And they became frightened. It was a frightening experience to see a man who was so wild and out of control. And now suddenly he's sitting down, clothed and in his right mind. But that's what the gospel does, doesn't it? The gospel puts us in our right mind. I mean, sin by its very nature is insanity, is it not? I mean, when I was an unbeliever, I didn't think right about my life. I had all kinds of ideas about God and who I was and what to expect. I was confused. My mind was darkened. My understanding was unclear. The gospel puts men in their right mind. The gospel brings uh, freedom from the bondage of sin and the lusts that destroy us. And this is what we offer. This is the message of our mission, that we know someone who can put you in your right mind. We know someone who can break the bonds of whatever is binding you, whatever is destroying you. We know someone who has the power to make it right. This is the wonderful message of our mission. We offer the hope of freedom and sanity to the world. This is the gospel that whatever your spiritual bondage might be, Jesus can set you free. He can give you a new life. And when you consider what Jesus has done for this man, No wonder he wanted to be with Jesus. It was a heartfelt expression of devotion. He had been relieved of his torture. He is now a devotee of Jesus. He wants to follow Jesus. Would you respond with like desire in your own heart considering what Jesus has done for your soul? Do you want to be with him? Are you drawn to be with Jesus? To read his word, to fellowship with his people, to know that he is in the midst of his people when they gather to praise him. It is the natural response to the experience of grace. This man is a picture of our condition and sin, and he's a picture of what ought to be our desire when we are set free by Christ and by his grace. We want to be with him.
Now, secondly, uh, besides uh, the fact that it ought to be our natural desire to be with Jesus and to follow him, uh, we ask the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Uh, And for many, following Jesus meant leaving everything behind. This was certainly the case for the rich young ruler, as recorded in Matthew 19, 16 to 22. You remember the rich young ruler, he came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? He said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Now, of course, he'd never read the larger catechism on the the second table of the law, or else he would not have said that, would he? All these things I have kept. I remember having an evangelistic study and conversation with a woman one time, and part of this evangelistic study was to read the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and ask herself, if this is the straight edge by which God will judge my life, how am I doing? And she thought she was doing pretty good. Of course, no one has really understood the demands of God's law if they think they're doing pretty good. And the shorter, larger catechism helps us understand that as it teases out the details of what God's law requires of us and also what it forbids of us. He had not kept the second table of the law as he ought to have, but he had a bigger problem. He had first table violations. He had idolatry. His possessions had possessed him. So Jesus put his finger on the real problem and said to them, uh, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieved for he was one who owned much property. When Jesus said to his disciples, follow me, He intended just that. They were to literally and physically follow Jesus. That is, they were to stop doing what they were doing at that very moment and get behind Jesus and start walking with Jesus and following him to the next city or town. When Jesus said to this rich young ruler, sell all your possessions, give them to the poor and come and follow me, that is exactly what he was being asked to do There was no symbolism there. This was not hyperbole. This is literally what he was supposed to do. This is exactly what this man, this demoniac who had been now relieved, that's exactly what he wanted to do to follow Jesus, to be with Jesus, to accompany him. But alas, Jesus would not let him. Now, there is a sense in which every man must follow Jesus in some sort of literal manner. You and I can't follow Jesus actually in a physical sense, of course, because he's not here. He is in his resurrected body, ascended on high, at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Jesus is not physically present on this earth anymore, so it is impossible for you to actually and literally in some physical way with your body to get behind Jesus and start following him. However, you and I can follow Jesus, must follow Jesus 
in a real and spiritual sense. How so? Well, first, you can follow Jesus by trusting him, by putting your faith and trust in him. You can become his disciple. You can recognize that you are a sinner who's helpless and hopeless except for God's mercy and grace, which is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And you can forsake your own sin, repent of it, and put your faith and trust in Jesus. That's the first way you can begin to follow Jesus in a real and spiritual sense. If you've never done that, I invite you to do that. I call upon you to do that. You will find forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Secondly, you can follow Jesus in a real and spiritual way by obeying his commands. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. You can stop doing whatever is sinful. You can repent of that and you can start saying, Lord, it is now my desire to obey you. You won't do it perfectly. You'll fail at it. uh, But you have the body of Christ and the means of grace to strengthen you in your walk with Christ. But that is part of what it means to follow Christ, to, to know his word, to know his commandments, and to begin to be obedient to those commandments. Thirdly, you can follow Jesus by making commitment to follow his example. You can say, I want to be like Jesus. I want to have mercy like Jesus. I want to bear testimony like Jesus. You can begin to imitate his example. That's another way you can really and spiritually follow Jesus. And fourthly, you can follow Jesus by adopting his mission as your own mission. Now, some of you uh, may be called to be pastors. God might call uh, one of you boys uh, here tonight. You're not even thinking about it. You're wondering when's he going to stop speaking. But maybe God is going to use you to proclaim the gospel in some amazing way somewhere. Maybe God will call you to own the mission because he calls you into the ministry. We pray that God will call men, gift men, and call men to preach the gospel here and also in the foreign mission field as well. That's another way that you can follow Jesus. Uh, When Jesus calls you to preach, to plant churches here and in foreign lands. That's why I moved to Statesboro, Georgia. I had no interest in Statesboro, Georgia. You've never heard of it probably before. It's the only one in the United States. There is a Statesville, but there is no Statesboro. Only one. And that's where God called me, and that's why I went there. It's the only reason I went there. My wife went with me because she's my wife. (laughs) But in all those ways, and perhaps other ways as well, you can follow Jesus. If you would be a disciple of Jesus, then you must follow Jesus. And these are some of the ways in which you and I can follow and must follow Jesus. But there is also another sense in which many of us will not follow him. It is in the sense uh, in which the Lord Jesus forbids this man in our text to follow him, even though he is begging him to follow him. It is certainly commendable, is it not, that he desires to follow Jesus in this manner. It's understandable. It can be uh, legitimately argued that every person who professes the name of Jesus should be willing to follow Christ even as this man desired to do so, But that is not what Jesus is asking him to do. In fact, Jesus explicitly forbids him to follow him. Mark 5 verse 19, he states, he did not let him. 
It's an odd plan for discipleship, isn't it? I mean, we want to have disciples, right? Here's a man begging to be a disciple, begging to follow him. Luke 8, verse 38 states, states, but he sent him away. As was true for this man, and as is true for most, if we ask the question, what does it mean for you to follow Jesus? Well, for most, following Jesus means staying where you are, in the literal sense. Most Christians are not supposed to follow Jesus in the sense of being professional ministers. That is, making their living from the ministry itself. Of course, this is legitimate. I argue in favor of it. It has helped me out much throughout my life. Uh, The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verse 14, So also the Lord directed those who proclaimed the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But this is not the norm. Not all are called to preach the gospel. Not all are called to go to foreign lands to preach the gospel, to plant churches. Uh, It's not the norm for John and Jane Doe, Christian, to leave their homes and leave their family and go off on some mission. If we had this missions conference and everybody here said, I'm going somewhere, next week Pastor Phillips would have no one to preach to. If everyone whom Jesus touched in Judea and Samaria and Galilee had actually left their homes, families, businesses, etc., and followed Jesus, wherever he went, it would have been a great disaster. It would have been chaos, economic turmoil. You see a little bit of a semblance of that, maybe when 5,000 men plus women and children, probably 15,000 people are out there in the middle of nowhere with nothing to eat. Of course, Jesus fed them. But if everybody quit doing what they were doing and everybody got up and started walking around behind Jesus, it would have been chaos. Does this mean there is to be a professional class of ministers who do all the ministering and then there are regular Christians who do nothing? No, it does not mean that. And part of our responsibility as ministers of the gospel is to equip you to do ministry where God has called you to live. Ministers or people who are professionally called to preach the gospel, to shepherd the flock, should see it as their job to perform some particular task, to preach, to administer the sacraments, and to equip God's people to engage in ministry where they live and work. So this is the main point. You've been waiting. When's he going to get there? All this build up about what it means to follow Jesus. Come on, say it. Well, here it is. Jesus did not prevent this man from following him in order to prevent him from doing ministry. On the contrary, Jesus prevented him from following him in order to press him into ministry. God might call some of you to go into professional ministry. I hope he does. But the Lord wants most of you to do the same thing as this man in our text is told to do. In verse 19, what did Jesus say to him? 
He did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Go home. Go across the street. Go next door. Luke records in chapter 8, verse 39, that Jesus said, return to your house and describe the great things God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. This is what all of us must do. It's not a question, you see, of leaving your home and job and family and going out and ministering the gospel or staying home with your job and family and doing nothing. Whether at home or somewhere else, you are to participate in the ministry of the gospel. Jesus sent this man back to his house. Why? To minister the gospel. Report what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. It's that simple. It really is. It's not complex. You don't have to be an apologist. You don't have to be a theologian. It's good to be an apologist. It's good to be a theologian. We ought all to desire to know sound doctrine. But all of us can go home and report what great things the Lord has done and how he has shown us mercy. Of course, that assumes that you have experienced the mercy of God. If you know what it means to stand before a holy God and know that you deserve to be cast away into hell for all eternity, and yet you have been shown mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ, You've experienced personally, intimately, in your own life, the mercy of God, then you can testify of how God has shown you mercy. Listen, I think it was a sacrifice for this man to leave the physical presence of Jesus and go home. After all, to what would he be returning? He lived in the cemetery. He didn't have the wealth of the prodigal son to fall back on. If he remained with Jesus, he would not be forsaking some great business opportunity back home. This is where ministry starts. This is where we first own the mission of Christ. We own it here. It starts at home in the real world where you live and work and play. Not overseas, but in your house. To those who are right under your nose. Not in Peru, not in England. It doesn't start there. It starts here in Greenville. It starts right here at Second Presbyterian Church. 
those right under your nose. Do a survey of the book of Acts sometime and notice how often the house or the household is mentioned. The gospel is spreading along lines of natural affinity from one household and one home to another. It's spreading by the practice of hospitality, or you could say hospitality, to coin a phrase. Here's the great need. Household ministry. Perhaps it is the most difficult place to minister because these people can observe you if God's mercy has changed you. They can see it or not. It does not have the anonymity of event evangelism. You know, we like to do event evangelism because nobody knows whether we've been changed by the mercy of God or not. It's fun to get on a bus and go across on the other side of town and get out and throw tracks at people. It's like kind of like a, you know, dance around the fire and get all wound up and then run and go evangelize. But those people never see you again. They don't know whether you've experienced the mercy of God or not. Now, God uses that. Don't get me wrong. But Jesus tells this man to go home. It is the responsibility of all of us, wherever we live or work, to participate in some way in the proclamation of the gospel. And this is where it must start. It does no good to go overseas if you will not go across the street or across the hall. And why would we send someone across the Atlantic Ocean or anywhere else who will not go across the street? For most of you, it will be to serve the Lord in the very place you are when he calls you as a lawyer or a dentist. Yes, even as a lawyer, you could serve the Lord. As a dentist, a landscaper, a housewife, a mother, a secretary, a teacher, an electrician, a plumber. This is noble service in the kingdom of God. As noble if you cross a large body of water. You know, it used to be, you, we think, in order for you to be a real missionary, you need to cross a body of water. And it's better if you did it in a ship. You could fly, we might give you credit for that, but it'd be better if you went in a ship. So people would say, I went on a mission trip last summer. I'd say, well, <clears throat> how'd you get there? They said, I flew. I said, did you, did you fly over water? No, you're not a missionary. If you're convinced that you must, I used to tell our people in our congregation, if you're convinced that in order to be a, a certified missionary, you must cross a body of water. Come with me, get in my truck, and I will take you across the Ogeechee River and bring you back. That's a river that's near us. Then I'll certify you. You are now authentically a missionary. Note that this man did not restrict or limit Jesus' instructions to his house alone. Jesus says, go home to your people, return to your house. But he extended the proclamation to the entire Decapolis. That whole region with ten cities. Or as Luke says, to the whole city. He was told to describe the great things God, or the Lord, as Mark says it, had done for him to give a report. But the text states that he began to proclaim the great things that Jesus had done for him. Could he have understood 
that Jesus is the Lord God himself in the flesh. This is the gospel that the eternal Son of God has taken our nature, the fullness of our nature upon himself to die in our place that we might be saved, to break the chains of sin and lust that bind us and that enslave us and that destroy us and to put us in our right minds to cleanse us and to renew us. This is what he has done for you if you know him. Thanks be to God. This is what he can and will do for others here and around the world. Our great calling, our great mission is to go home first and proclaim this gospel and live out this gospel and then take it to the city and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. All of us have a part to play. Pray, minister here if you're called to stay, minister there if you're called to go, and give that others make up. May God help us as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being merciful. I pray, Father, you would give us hearts that are so thankful that we want to tell about the great things that you have done for us here and also around the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.